Well, I invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We are at the end of chapter 11. If you're just joining us, we are walking through this wonderful book of the Bible. And we are nearing the end, a couple more chapters after this. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 11, starting in verse 32. Just a reminder, this last week I used that illustration of uh, the tunnel between the locker room and the field. That back in chapter 10 we got our pregame speech, reminding us to, to not throw away our confidence, but to hold on to our hope all the way to the end. And now in chapter 11, we've, as we walk to the field, we walk past all these examples of saints from days gone by. And we see their examples of faith and what it looks like to trust the Lord. And now we come near the end of that. And we have these last, these last few examples on the wall before we take the field for ourselves. So Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32. Hear the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, Afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, this morning as I thought about how do, I, how do I set this up? How does this make sense? It's always a dangerous question. But here's my answer I came up with this morning. There's a game that we used to play when I was younger. It's probably still played. It's a way that you kind of help get to know each other in group settings. And the game was called Two Truths and a Lie. You guys know that game? All right. Somebody does. The idea of the game is very simple. You go around and you give three facts about yourself. You tell them three things about you. And two of them are true. But one of them is a lie. So then others have to guess which one is not true. And so you try to make it difficult. You try to make them seem all equally believable. So, for example, I might say to you, I've never broken a bone. I've been bitten by a zebra. And I've performed in four musicals. Now you guys have to figure out which of those is not true. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to tell you the answer. You just got to stew on that one. But two of those are true. And one is not. And I'm not going to tell you until later. 
which one it is. So as you do this, you really start to get to know people as you think about like, would they really do something like that? Can I see them doing that? Oh, you actually did that? And so you get to know them and you realize that sometimes what you thought was true about someone wasn't. Well, our passage is a little bit like that this morning. It helps us get to know more about what this faith that we're talking about really looks like. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at, we're going to flip it. Instead of two truths and a lie, we're going to look at two lies and a truth. Two things that are not true about real faith and one thing that is. All right, so are you ready? Here are three facts about faith. So if faith were playing the game, here's what the three facts would be. First fact, those who have faith are strong people who have it all together. Fact number one. Fact number two, having faith will keep you from suffering. And fact number three, for those who have faith, the best is yet to come. So those are the three facts. Now, if we're sitting here, we're trying to get to know this thing called faith, we've got to figure out, okay, which of those is true and which of those is not? So what we're going to do is work our way through the text and look at each of those, and our goal is to get to know faith a little better and to grow in our own faith. And as we look at faith, we may realize that some things we thought were true about faith weren't. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's jump right in. Let's look at our first fact about faith. Those who have faith are strong people who have it all together. That's the first one on the table for discussion. So look on as I reread verses 32 to 34. He says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Now first, this part is so encouraging to me as a preacher. Because here our authors already talked about over a dozen examples from the Old Testament. And then he looks down at his notes and he looks up at the clock and he realizes there's no way he's going to get through all these examples. <laughs> Time would fail for me to tell. So he's, he says, uh, I'm just going to skip right through this, okay? I mean, can you imagine that a preacher ran out of time? That's, that's one of the most unbelievable things. So instead of giving us details of what their faith looked like, he just says, I'm just going to mention their names. And then I'm not even going to mention names. I'm just going to rattle off some examples in general of what faith accomplished in the Old Testament. So here's what I want to do. We're going to look very briefly at these names. And I want to give you just a flavor of what incredible things God did through the faith of these saints. Okay, so we're going to move quick. The first one we'll actually spend the most on, but they're going to go quick. First, Gideon. Gideon led Israel's army against a much bigger army. How much bigger, you ask? Good question. Well, the Midianites they were going against had 135,000 people. That's a big army. Gideon started with 32,000. 135,000, 32,000. But God said, that's too many, Gideon. If I give the enemy into your hand now, you might boast and say, my own hand has saved me. He's like, I don't want that. So let's reduce your army. So it went from 32,000 to 10,000. 
Surely Gideon's thinking, okay, that's, whew, okay, here we go. God said, mm, no, still, that's way too many. You still might, you'd be tempted to think you did this. So then God cuts his army from 10,000 to 300. 300, 135,000. Those are not good odds. And then, God said, just to make this really stacked against you, here's what I'm going to arm your army with, Gideon. Grab your torches, your jars, and your trumpets. Those are hardly implements of war, if you're not familiar with how battles are fought. So, he's got this ragtag little group of people compared to this massive army, and they've got these jokes for weapons and he says okay and God gives Gideon victory God gives Gideon victory over this massive enemy with his little band of jar smashers and trumpet blowers now side note about Gideon it's good for us to remember that sometimes God takes away things that we would be tempted to look to to save us to justify us to make us secure he takes good things away so that we'll rely completely on him and he gets the glory. Gideon probably thought the odds were stacked against him when he had 32,000 people. But there was no doubt in his mind by the time he got down to 300 that when God gave them victory, there wasn't a bone in his body that said, look what I just did. He knew God had done this. And that's what God was after. And so there may be things in our lives that are not bad things, but God may take them away because we'd be too tempted to say, look what I just did. Look at the life I've built. Look at the walk with God I have. So he says, okay, you need to remember it's only by my grace. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so that's Gideon. Next up is a guy named Barak. Now Barak Similar to Gideon, led this great military victory against much stronger power. He defeated a Canaanite army and their 900 chariots. Now, chariots may sound like, what's the big deal? Those are like tanks of the day, okay? So they did not have these, but they went up against an army with 900 tanks, so to speak. But God gives him victory. After him is Samson. Samson was this combination Rambo, Chuck Norris, all rolled into one. He's like this one, he waged this one-man war against the Philistines, repeatedly defeating whole groups of armies here. He did incredible things like striking down a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Who does that? Samson does. He does these great acts, and his last act was perhaps his greatest when, you know the story, he uses his, his strength to push down pillars holding up a rooftop where 3,000 Philistines are gathered to have this celebration praising their false god, Dagon. And he takes out 3,000 of the enemy at the cost of his own life. Here's another example of faith. Then we come to Jephthah. He's a little bit less known, but he's another leader who won amazing victories for God over the people's enemies. Then we come to David, somebody you know, the man after God's own heart. David trusted God to defeat the giant Goliath when he was just a teenager. Then he grows up to become the greatest of Israel's kings as an, as an adult. He gets these great victories. He rules in righteousness all through trusting in God. Then the last name on our list is Samuel. So Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, these were all judges. 
Okay, during that period there, you'll find them in the book of Judges. They were this period before the kings. Then we have David, who was the king. And the last name on the list is Samuel, who's considered usually the first prophet. So Samuel and all the prophets who followed him, these were men who just boldly spoke the word of the Lord, even when it meant suffering for them. So again, another guy accomplishing amazing things. So here we, got, we see this list of six names that God just did incredible things through them. Things that glorified the name of God. Things that accomplished great good for his people. These men were mightily used by God. So we might be tempted to think, well, these great examples of faith, well, they were all strong people who had it all together. Right? Wrong. It's simply not true. Every single one of these men was a deeply flawed saint who struggled with sin and weakness. As you look at their lives, it's kind of like the children's books that you, you look through and you see the story, but each page has a flap that you open and you can see something that's not immediately visible. Well, as we read the stories of all the great things God does through them, we, we see these stories of, wow, victory, wow, success, wow, accomplishment. But each page, if you open the flap, you realize, wait, these were, these were actually weak and flawed people. These were actually people kind of like me. So let's look back over the list again and let me open the flap for you as we go back through them. First, our, our friend Gideon. When God calls Gideon, Gideon has serious doubts. I want you to listen to this conversation when God first calls him. I, so I think there's connections to our lives here. So Gideon's going about his business just doing his job, and it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So God shows up. An angel of the Lord shows up and first tells Gideon who he is. He says, This is your identity. You are a mighty man of valor. Okay, now Gideon's not really going to believe that. And he says that he's with him. Okay, so he's this great news, this good tidings of, of who Gideon is and God's presence with him. But Gideon's not going to sound like much of a mighty man here. How does Gideon respond to this? Angel shows up, says, hey, mighty man of valor. Gideon says, please, my Lord, if, if, if God is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. How's that for a mighty man of valor? He, he looks at his circumstances rather than looking at God's word. God says, Gideon, I am with you. And Gideon says, Oh yeah, then why is all this happening to me? Look around, God. Where are your wonderful deeds? I've, I've read about them. I've heard about them. But... I don't see them. It seems like you've abandoned us, God. Ever felt that way? Ever felt that God calls you to do something? It could be a big thing, or it could just be your day-to-day -day obedience. But it feels hard. And you think, there's no way. You have trouble believing that God is with you, and you say, God, you want me to do that, but don't you see the situation? God, look at my life. If you were with me, I wouldn't be in this spot to begin with. Where's all the good deeds that I read about? Have, have you left me, God? 
Listen to how God responds to Gideon. After Gideon has his little tantrum, God says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. God says, I know about your situation, Gideon, and I'm going to use you in it. I'm not oblivious to your situation. I'm going to use you to make good out of it. And I am the one sending you. Don't lose sight of that, Gideon. I'm the one doing this. But Gideon's not convinced. He says to God, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon rightly recognizes here that what God called him to do, he said, that's too much. There's no way. God, do you know who I am? Gideon is he's like, I'm too weak. I'm too small. And did you hear his question? It's very important. He says, how can I save Israel? How can I do this, God? Do you ever ask that question? How, God, how can I do this thing you asked me to do? How can I have that conversation? How can I work through that conflict in my marriage? How can I stay in this situation? How can I share the gospel with that person who's so intimidating? How can I follow your call to go? God, it's too much for me. I'm not strong enough. I don't know enough. I'm the last person in the world you should ask to do this. But listen to what God says to him. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God knows all about Gideon's weakness. But God never intended him to do it alone or in his own strength. God says, But I will be with you. In other words, I'll do this. You trust me. Now at this point, I wish I could say that solved all Gideon's doubts. And he says, okay, got it. But it didn't. Because he was still afraid, Gideon asks for a sign from God, which God graciously gave him. And then later, Gideon still has doubts. He's still unsure, so he asks for another sign with the fleece. And when God does it, he says, okay, now let's, let's reverse it, God. I'm, that was really helpful, but let's do it the other way now. So he just asks for more and more. And so Gideon looks much more like a scared, uncertain man than a mighty man of valor. Much more like somebody we can relate to. And yet this weak, fearful man is the same one we just talked about a minute ago who took on an army 450 times the size of his own. And this weak saint with faltering trust is included in our Bibles as an example of faith. How? Because despite all his fears and weaknesses, he still trusted the Lord to do what he had said. He still obeyed by faith even when he was scared and unsure. Okay, so that's Gideon. Now let's flip the page. We come to the, the brave Barak. When the prophetess Deborah called Barak to lead the army into battle, this mighty warrior, Barak, cowardly says to Deborah, I'll, I'll only go if, if you go with me. Now, if you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? Ladies, I want you to picture this. You're in your house at night, and you hear a noise downstairs or out in the other room. You turn to your husband and say, honey, I heard something. Will you go check it out? And your mighty man of valor that you're married to says, I will, but, 
Will you come with me? Not exactly a poster child of courage here, right? That's essentially what Barak is doing. He says to Deborah, this prophetess, says, I'm only going to go into battle if you come with me, please. And yet, despite his hesitancy and his fear, he goes to battle by faith and overcomes this army of 900 chariots. Samson? Samson's got too long a list of issues for us to even go through. From, from sexual immorality to impulsive acts of anger and revenge, he might have been a physically strong guy, but morally he was weak and no example of virtue. Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute who was kicked out of his own family. Then, yes, he led a great victory over the enemies, but in doing so, he also made a foolish vow He said, God, if you help me in this battle, I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my door first when I get home. And when he comes home triumphant, he sinfully keeps that vow, even though it meant sacrificing his own daughter. King David, great king, great sinner. He committed adultery. And then, as if that weren't enough to cover it up, he murders the woman's husband. Samuel, Samuel's sons, it tells us in the Bible, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And yet, Samuel appoints them as judges over Israel. What I want you to see by opening these flaps in each of these characters here is that each of these men of faith had serious flaws. Fear, weakness, sin. They had flaws as leaders, as parents, as followers of God. And what this list of men tells us though, and what should be so encouraging to us this morning, is that God does great things through the faith of flawed people. He does great things through the faith of flawed people. So you might this morning feel like there's no way God can use your life at least not for anything meaningful. Your past, it's too dark. You've made horrible decisions. You're weaker than you'd like to admit. And if you're honest, sometimes you have doubts and are afraid to do the things that you know God is calling you to do. Friends, the good news of these examples is that your weakness and flaws won't stop God from using you for his good purposes. In fact, God only uses weak and flawed people. That's why Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So this list in Hebrews 11, this is just a long line of clay pots. It's fragile, feeble, and flawed. And yet through them all, God's power and glory are displayed. And that's what our lives are meant to be as well. Our weak and flawed lives are the canvas where God paints a picture of his power and his beauty. So what you need to hear this morning is that your weakness doesn't hinder God's greatness from being seen in your life. Your weakness highlights God's greatness in your life. The very thing that you're so ashamed of, God says, I'm going to work through that. That doesn't sideline you. That just gives God opportunity to show off. His greatness. So here's the great news for weak, sinful, flawed people. 
which is all of us who came in this morning. The good news is that we have a Savior who's strong and righteous and flawless. Jesus, our strong Savior, became weak for us. He became weak by becoming a man like us. He became weak and then he demonstrated his weakness by on the cross taking on himself all of the things that embody our weakness. He took our sin, our shame, our guilt, and he bore them on the cross. And when he did that, he did what we could never do. Just like we saw God doing through all the lives of these men, Jesus did what we could never do. He did what we aren't strong enough or good enough to do. He defeated our enemies that are far too powerful for us. He defeated sin by dying in our place to pay for it. He defeated death by then rising again. And he defeated Satan by taking away his main weapon against us, the guilt of our sin. So we are weak, flawed people, but we are saved by faith in a strong, sinless Savior. As we sang earlier, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. There's no way we would win this fight. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. He must win the battle. That's the good news for us, friends. Or maybe you like it a little simpler. Let me, let me choose a different song. You might think that's a little too complicated. How about this one? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, little ones, insignificant, flawed ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Same theology. Same theology. So here's what you need to know. Jesus only saves weak, flawed sinners. And Jesus only uses weak, flawed saints. So don't let your past, your sin, or your weakness convince you that God can't do great things through your life. Said, look to him in faith. Now look down at that list of things that the flawed saints did through their faith. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Notice that, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. How, why did they have to become mighty in war? Because they weren't mighty. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now I wish we had time to go into each of these. There's more stories to tell. But as a much better preacher than me said, Time would fail me to go into these examples. So what I want you to see is that what these people did by faith, that list of accomplishments, was far more than what was possible on their own. Through faith, weak people are made strong, and God does great things through the faith of flawed saints. Okay, so the, the first lie we exposed in this, this game, so to speak, of two lies and a truth. The first lie was exposed... That those who have faith are strong people who have it all together. Instead, we said, nope, not true. What is true is that God does great things through the faith of flawed saints. Now we come to our second fact about faith. Having faith will keep you from suffering. If I just believe, if you have strong enough faith, suffering will not be a part of your life. Let's see if that holds up 
in verses 35 to 38. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So, our statement was, having faith will keep you from suffering. Clearly, the second statement is a lie. What we see in these verses is that faith does not keep us from suffering, but it does sustain us through suffering. Verse 35 starts out with the, it's kind of this last little reminder of the amazing things that people enjoyed by faith. It says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. That's amazing. But it goes on. In fact, in the original, it's the same sentence. It says, yes, some receive their dead back by resurrection, but others were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why did they refuse to accept release? Why, Why not just give in? It literally says, they refused to accept release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. A better one. See, there's stories that probably are coming to your mind from the Old Testament. There, there were some women, such as the widow of Zarephath, who received back their dead temporarily. They, they come back to life, but they eventually die again. It's amazing, but it's just a reprieve, a brief pause. But some saints, it says, endure torture rather than deny Christ because they weren't looking for just a few more years on their earthly life. They were after a life that never ends. They wanted resurrection. And the first thing that we need to see here is that the faith that we see in verses 35 to 38 is the same faith that we saw in 32 to 34. Both groups do what they do by faith. For some, God works through their faith to empower them to accomplish great things. But for others, God works through their faith to empower them to endure great suffering. Different circumstances, same faith. If you ever hear anyone say that, oh, if only you have enough faith, you won't suffer, take them to Hebrews 11. Ask them what they do with these people. Because the believers in verses 35 to 38, they had faith. In fact, they suffered because they believed. If they didn't have faith, they wouldn't have suffered the way they did. So what could possibly cause people to endure horrendous suffering like this? Faith in the promises of God. These people lived and died and endured suffering trusting in the promises of God. Scan your eyes over that list and think about the promises they believed. They endured the threat of death because they trusted God's promise of resurrection life. They endured mocking from men because they trusted that they would hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your master. They endured chains and imprisonment because in Christ they've been set free. They endured the loss of worldly riches because they believed the promise of heavenly treasure. They endured poor clothing now because robes of righteousness awaited them. 
And they endured wandering about in temporary dwellings because they knew they were headed to an everlasting home. That's what got them through the suffering. They weren't gluttons for punishment. They didn't enjoy that, but oh, they enjoyed what was coming. And as fellow believers, we too can endure by faith in God's promise. Faith that the reward that is coming to us in Christ is so much better than anything we might suffer here that we can say with Paul in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, if you put all the satisfaction we enjoy in Christ and all the suffering we endure in Christ in a scale and see which one's heavier, he says it's not even close. It's not even close. 2 Corinthians 4 says these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Now as we hear that, As you scan over that list and you say, those don't sound like light and momentary afflictions. Torture? Being sawn in two? Chains? Those don't sound terrible. And if you knew what I'm going through, Pastor, I wouldn't call that light. I wouldn't call that momentary. Do you know how long I've been going through this thing? Years. How can you say that's light or momentary? We can say that it's light and momentary when we compare it to the weight of glory that's coming and to the eternity that it'll last. So no matter how bad things are, 70, 80 years of suffering are a little blip on the big screen of eternity. And that's what these saints knew. They said, you could do anything to me for these few short years that I sojourn on this earth. Because 10,000 years from now, I won't remember what that was. I've compared it before to like when kids are little and you give them their, like, their school vaccines. Like nobody likes a shot. It's ow, it hurts. But it's so little, like there's none of you that are in your 60s that say, oh, I vividly recall the day I got my whatever shot you got when you were four. It hurt at the time. It was real pain. You probably cried. You were sad. I'm not trying to minimize it. But in the scope of your lifetime, by the time you're 74, 80 years old, you're not saying, oh, I remember that. What you do remember is that because you got that then, it enabled you to enjoy something for a long time. And that's what these saints knew. They're saying, I'll go through this little suffering a few decades. Sure, If I have an eternity of joy on the backside? Not only that, Christians can face any hardship that comes with following Jesus because we believe the promise of Romans 8, where it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to what Paul says. See if this doesn't sound like Hebrews 11. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, nothing 
you will ever go through will be able to separate you from God's love in Christ. No disease, no persecution, no grief, no suffering you'll ever go through will ever be able to put a wedge in between you and God's love. It is an unbreakable bond. Our earthly life is fragile, but our life in Christ is invincible. And the early Christian apologist Justin Martyr, he knew this. He knew this as he said to his fellow believers as they were marched out and they looked out over the place they were to be executed and he turned to his fellow Christians and said, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. They can kill us, but they can't hurt us. Martin Luther knew that same thing as he wrote the words we sang earlier, the body they may kill. They might, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Where do Christians get these ideas? Where does this concept come from? It comes from Jesus himself, who said in Luke 21, some of you they will put to death. And then in the next breath said, but not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Was he confused? What could he possibly mean? He means they may take your earthly life, but you have a life that no one can touch. And it's never in danger, never in doubt. That's why Christians face these things. What I want you to see this morning, friends, is that having faith in Jesus does not mean you won't suffer. But having faith in Jesus means that when the suffering comes, you will endure. How? By faith in the promises of God. I don't know what God's story for your lives will hold. There are some in this room who may accomplish great things for his name. I pray that's true. But there may also be some in this room who endure great suffering for his name. Either way, the Christian life is lived by faith and the better promises of God, trusting that he will empower us to do what we couldn't do on our own, or he will empower us to endure what we couldn't endure on our own. Either way, the faith is the same. Both believe that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Friends, we are being discipled by our culture every day to believe that we should live for today. Live in the moment, right now. YOLO, you only live once. Make the most of it. You got a bucket list? Start checking those items off because when time runs out, that's it. This is your life. This is your chance. When this is done, it's all over. Carpe diem. Why would you ever choose a path of suffering as a follower of Jesus? Why not choose a life of comfort? If this is all there is, Why did these people do that? Because eternity is real. Because suffering with Jesus for a lifetime is nothing compared to suffering without him forever. Having some cheap momentary rewards for a few years here doesn't come close to having eternal satisfaction in Christ. So let's follow the example of these fellow pilgrims. Let's not live for today. Hear me, I don't want to hear that you are living your best life now. I don't. Let's live for forever. 
Let's not waste our lives chasing momentary pleasures or temporary comfort that just crumble through our hands. Let's spend our lives pursuing glory and treasure and joy that never ends. How do we do that? We live by faith. We trust in Christ so that whether we experience peace like a river or sorrows like sea billows roll, either way, we can say, it is well with my soul. And that brings us to the end of our chapter and our last statement. So we've already identified that the first two statements were lies. We said those who have, the first statement was those who have faith are strong people who have it all together. And we said, nope. The truth is that God does great things through the faith of flawed saints. The second statement was having faith will keep you from suffering. We said, nope. The truth is having faith will keep you through suffering. And since the first two were lies, that means our last statement must be true. For those who have faith, the best is yet to come. Look at verse 39. And all of these, all chapter 11, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So two things were true for all the saints we've looked at in chapter 11. All of them were commended by God through their faith. And they all did not receive what was promised. As verse 13 said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, they died still waiting for their reward. What were they waiting for? You see here, they were waiting for God's unfolding plan. God had something better, it says, for us. What's the something better? The something better is the new covenant we have in Christ. The new way of how God relates to his people. It's something better because it's a better covenant obtained by better blood from a better sacrifice offered by a better priest in better holy places. That's why it's something better. And so all of these Old Testament saints we've looked at, they trusted God's promises, looking forward by faith, but not seeing their fulfillment. But we who are in Christ, we've seen how God is keeping his promises. Because all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. In fact, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, fu- for the fullness of time to unite all things in him we see what they only long to see Jesus is where all the promises of God come together and one day friends our faith shall be sight and all the things that we've trusted God for will be ours and they'll be ours in Christ we will cross that great horizon clouds behind and life secure we shall see him in the new Jerusalem and praise the one who saved us And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Because that's what awaits us. Because that's our reward, friends. Let's go back to where we started 
Remember, this is all flowing out of the pregame speech, the charge in chapter 10. Because that's what's coming. Let us heed the words of chapter 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, yet a little while, and the coming one is coming, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So no matter what, Chapelwood, whatever our lot, whether it's great accomplishments or great suffering, Whatever our lot, may we trust that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our souls. May we confess that Christ is our only hope in life and in death and our souls to him belong. And because of that, we can always, no matter what, say by faith, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we tremble before the examples of these people. We, we tremble when we see the great things you've done and we think, could, could God really do something like that with me? And we tremble before the example of the great suffering and we say, oh God, would you ever have me go through something like that? And yet, God, we are encouraged to remember that these saints were people just like us with flaws and sins and fears and weakness the only way they were able to accomplish these great things and the only way they were able to endure these horrendous sufferings is because you said, I will be with you. So God, may we cling to that promise that no matter what we go through, you will never leave us or forsake us. That we don't need to fear for you are with us. Your right hand upholds us. God, I pray that you would make us men and women of faith. Pray that we would trust you, that we would, we would attempt great things for you and expect great things from you. I pray that we would cling to you as the waves of suffering swirl all around us. God, we acknowledge we are not strong. We acknowledge that we, apart from you, can do nothing. But with you, in Christ, all things are possible. Help us believe, Lord. As was said earlier, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.